Guys, it is good to um, be here with you today, and um, I am going to jump right into the message because we are covering a series which we've been doing for the past several weeks called Back to Church, and it was on the heels of our uh, Back to Church Sunday, which is a national uh, celebration that we have as people are coming back from their school, uh, being on breaks, and also people vacationing and traveling during the summer, and they're getting back into the regular rhythms of life. And so we've been doing a um, Back to Church, uh, I guess, message and series, and what we've been covering over the past uh, couple of weeks is two things. Number one, um, why God loves his church. Secondly, uh, last week we talked about God's purpose for the church. And today we're going to talk and finish this um, series before we have our uh, very special guest, Pastor Reggie, next week. We're going to talk about unity and diversity within God's church. Unity with diversity within God's church. I want to go ahead and qualify this um, initially and say that what we aren't talking about is we're not talking about a diversity in different types of faiths, okay? We're not talking about that. We are firm believers in the Bible and the scripture where the Bible says that God's exalted above all things, his name and his word. And so whenever we're preaching the Bible, we know that Jesus Christ said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him, right? So he is one of the most exclusive, it's not the most exclusive, inclusive person you'll ever meet, right? He said, the only way you can come to me is through my sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. But what we are talking about is um, ethnic diversity. What we are talking about is cultural diversity. What we are talking about is background and socioeconomic diversity. And all of that God has within his church to glorify him and honor his name. So let's pray, and then we're going to get started. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us today. God, we love you. We love your word. We love your church. And if you have a bride that is full of diversity and full of all types of expressions of your wisdom and glory, God, we want to embrace it and celebrate it in the mighty name of Jesus. Help conform us into your image by your word and your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today, if you're taking notes, we're going to break this message up into three parts. We're going to talk about the unity that God desires. We're going to talk, secondly, about utopic ideals. We all have ideas of what's best and the perfect scenario if we could create it, right? Utopic ideals that we have. And then finally, we're going to talk about unmitigated forgiveness, unmitigated forgiveness, unmitigated just meaning complete forgiveness without any type of caveat or any type of any type of um, disclaimer, okay? Unmitigated forgiveness. So first of all, when we're talking about the fact that uh, God has unity and diversity within his church, we need to understand that throughout both the Old and New Testaments, we've seen God talking about people who were committed to his house, to his body, to ultimately in the New Testament, his church. We saw in the Old Testament a man named King David who was a man after God's own heart. But in the midst of the people that he was leading, he was a man after God's own heart and wanted to do all that God had for him to do. But he was surrounded by a people who didn't always feel the same. He was surrounded by a people who didn't necessarily have the same zeal for God or the same heart that King David had. So there were differences even in the community of worshipers that he 
he was in. Then you see Jesus, who was the crux of all of our faith. And if you talk about anybody being different, Jesus is the epitome of holiness, is he not? By nature, he is the very image of God, which is different than any other human being because Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, which is different than anybody that he came to save. And so Jesus, in his nature and holiness, was different than the people that he came and walked among and ministered to, but yet he still, in his ministry, was part of the synagogue. You saw him young, when he was in his younger years, learning at the temple and even astounding the teachers in the temple by the answers that he gave to the law of God. But Jesus himself was altogether different. And one of my favorite examples as we go into the New Testament is the Apostle Paul, whereas Peter was known as the preacher to the Jews, meaning his own people, Paul was known as the minister to the Gentiles, who was everybody else. And thank God that everybody else got included, because that's why many of you are here today. That's why I'm here, right? Because he was willing to cross cultural and ethnic barriers to get to a place where the gospel, which was really meant for all mankind, all nations, got to the people that God intended to reach. And so we see in the very crux, at the very core of Christianity, there is a unity with diversity. But in understanding God's desire for unity, we need to understand that Jesus builds his church with a people of diverse ethnic, socioeconomic, cultural, and experiential backgrounds. A lot of times what we do is we are people who are like a feather. We tend to flock together with those who are like us. But whenever Jesus is building his church, he's building it through a diverse group of people from all of these different categories. And we must learn to celebrate this and learn to share life together as we're being conformed into the image of Christ. So let's open the Bible today to Psalm chapter 133. We're going to look at um, a, a Psalm first by David, who I mentioned, and then we're going to go into some of the words of Jesus to understand this progression of how God exemplifies unity within his body. This particular song was a song of ascents, meaning that whenever the people were getting ready to worship, they would sing songs that would prepare their hearts for the worship of God. This one was penned by King David himself, the man after God's own heart, and it said this. It said, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore." Now, this is a short psalm, but I'm going to take the time to set the stage for the unity that God desires through this short song. What we see is that King David was saying, blessed are those, how good and pleasant it is, rather, when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, because everybody who's searching for the blessing of God can find the blessing of God when people are unified in his house, worshiping him by his word, under his name, and giving glory to him as we fulfill his mission. God has said literally that I command my blessing where unity is. 
I command my blessing wherever there are people speaking in the same heart and the same mind, even speaking the same language before the living God. Now, we are people who are constantly reaching out to those who don't know the Lord yet, that they might come to know him. And so we try to stay away from things like Christianese. When, what I mean by Christianese is speaking in a vocabulary that people who are uninitiated won't understand. But we still speak and affirm biblical language, do we not? Because biblical language actually communicates biblical concepts, theological concepts about God, who he is, his person, his nature, and how we're to relate to him that we all need to embrace. And when we even look back in the Old Testament, one of the earliest judgments of God was in a, a place called Babel. And it was in a place called Babel when he literally had the nations coming together and there was no separation amongst the nations and they all spoke the same language. But the thing about it is that they were full of pride. They were full of pride and they were full of arrogance and much like the cities in which we live, they wanted to make a monument to themselves. And so they began to build a tower that they thought they could reach God with and then eventually usurp the authority that he had in their lives. And so God ultimately scattered them, confused their language, and spread them over the face of the earth. But what he said about them is he said, I'm doing this because if with, as one man with one speech they do this, then nothing will be impossible for them. That God said this in the absence of them being submitted to him. How much more so when the people of God are submitted to Jesus Christ and his ways, being of one man, one mind, speaking the same language for the sake of the cross and the gospel, will the things that Jesus puts in front of us be possible for us? That's what he says. He says, if you are unified, I'm going to command my blessing where the unity is. And he, Jesus, whenever he was talking about even his kingdom, he said literally, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house, meaning even a family, divided against itself cannot stand. And so why God is continually speaking about unity is because he wants unity in the faith, unity in love, unity in common vision, mission, and purpose. And that's what he brings us together, not just to have a singular or individualized faith, but to have a corporate faith in the church for he says, it's for the purpose of unity unto my purposes and mission. Now, the question that we've been asking over the past several weeks is, who is literally spurring you on within the church to greater faith, love, and good deeds in Christ? Who is it in the church if you're unified and you're actually living life together with people, having a shared life, is spurring you on to greater love, faith, and good deeds in Christ? We know that the writer of Hebrews was writing to the church back in the day, and he said, listen, do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day of God's appearing and his judgment approaching, right? And so he was saying, even back then, that people had a proclivity to go away from the gathering of the brethren and to go to individualize, um, what is it? Individualize myopic faith that was only about their own personal walk rather than what Jesus was accomplishing through his church. But in his church, through the unity that he provides, he says, you are spurred on to greater love, faith, and good deeds. The problem is, is that we often want to do that with people who are just like us. 
But the truth of the matter is, is that even as you see in this image, if you could put up the first image for us, we see that back in when God created humanity, you see that literally people were made to be diverse in their interactions with one another, accomplishing the purposes of God. Now, this isn't necessarily what it looks like in adulthood, but how many people think this is at least cute? Okay, this is, what, this is at least how it's meant to be. And I saw a recent post that said, children will play with everyone until someone tells them not to. Isn't that the truth? If you've ever been around children, you see that they're open and they're, they're willing to associate, they're willing to love, they're willing to receive from anyone as long as they have the right type of attention, right? Until somebody in society tells them not to. And it strikes against the unity that God intended for his people. But whenever we understand that God commands his blessing where unity is, then we fight for it. Then we strive for it. And we look to protect it at all costs. Amen? Okay. Am I by myself? Amen? Amen. Okay, good. Okay. But what we've got to do is understand in the midst of the unity that God intends for his people that there are also challenges that come against it. And the challenges that come against the unity that God intends to command his blessing on in his people are the utopic ideals. The utopic ideals that we have in how things should look, how things should function, and how things should be when we are a gathered people together. And biases, I'll say this, that biases and offense, biases and offense are often the killers of the unity that God desires in his church. We must resist both in the love of Christ if we're to become the people of God he intended us to be. Now, this absolutely applies practically to when we're trying to pick a local church. If you've ever been new in a city or you've been new in a new town, you often try to go from church shopping, right? Go from church to church, and you're often looking for that perfect scenario, that perfect picture of what it is that's going to fit you and your style, your interest for the things that God wants to do in your life. But what we're encouraging you to do is that once you've prayed about and discovered a Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving church on mission, you need to learn to put down utopic ideals, put down utopic ideals, and build together with the people who are in front of you to actually see God work in you to accomplish his mission. There used to be an old song, some of you are old enough to remember it, but it was called, Love the One You're With. Anybody remember that song? Okay, some of you, yeah, love the one you're with. Okay, YouTube now. Okay, so here's the thing. Spending time with people, spending time with people is literally the only way that you're going to overcome things like suspicions, misunderstandings, and cultural stereotypes. If you walk into an environment and think that God himself might be leading you into an environment, but you don't see people like you, but you feel something of the Spirit telling you you need to be there, the only thing that's going to help you overcome and reach a place of unity is spending time with people. When you begin to see that people have the same hopes, the same dreams, the same aspirations, and the same need for God and for his purposes as you do, that you actually breathe the same air 
eventually those walls will come down. But to do so, you've got to intentionally, everybody please say intentionally, you've got to intentionally develop friendships and have people in your space, in your world, and in your home to cross that divide. There was a woman that my wife's actually reading a book by right now called Rosario Butterfield. Has anyone ever heard of Rosario Butterfield? Years ago, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She came from um, a a homosexual relationship. And over a two-year period, there was a family, a pastor's family, who was inviting her just to into their home to eat with her, to talk with her, to love on her. And over the course of time, they were ministering the love and the truth of God to her. And over the course of that same time, her heart was open to the gospel message. She repented of her sin, and she was given to the life of God. And now she speaks nationally and with her books internationally about the love, grace, and forgiveness that Jesus Christ has for all mankind as they repent and turn to their sin. But what was she open to? She was open to people opening their home to her, where they were practicing hospitality, where they were practicing opening up their lives in such a way that they were made uncomfortable, maybe in a moment, but it was for the sake of the eternal purposes of the king. The question is, can we not do the same? There was a woman who uh, is named Verna Myers. Has anyone ever heard of Verna Myers before? Okay. How many of you listen to TED Talks? Anybody listen to TED Talks? Okay. She was a recent contributor to TED Talks, and she's actually the VP of inclusion and strategy for, of all things, Netflix, okay, for Netflix. And she said this in trying to understand the diversity that um, God's trying to open even us up to. She said, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance, Diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is actually being asked to dance. Big difference, right? There are plenty of people who might sit on the right and the left of you in a setting like this, worshiping the one living God together, giving ourselves to his purposes and his commands, right? But if this is the only time that you see people who might be different from you, who might be from a different background than you, then it's not actually the unity or the inclusion that God's requiring or looking for. He said to actually share a life is biblical fellowship. Share the ups and the downs. Share the triumphs and the sadnesses, the joys, and also the things that we're believing in faith to see God come and accomplish in our lives. Does it make people uncomfortable at times? The answer is yes. But is it the purpose and the plan of God? The answer is also yes. When we're looking to um, understand diversity, we need to understand that we don't need to be afraid to ask questions. Ask questions of people who are different than you to get to know another person's experience, perspective, and pain. We're giving you practical relating tips now, right? When God puts a people together who are from different backgrounds and he's looking to command a blessing on the unity, you've got to not presume anything. How many people have ever been guilty before of sizing somebody up on the streets of the city of Chicago? Sizing somebody up, right? 
Let me tell you, anybody, can, can you just, you could be honest with me. Anybody think I'm friendly? Just a little bit. I like to smile. Okay, listen. But do you know, even in the past couple of weeks, I got sized up. I got sized up. Because what? I wasn't behind the pulpit. I didn't have my Bible open. I was actually coming to introduce, of all things, a police officer to the love of Jesus Christ. Thanking him for his work in the city. And you know what he did? He had some questions for me. But the way it came across was quite belligerent. <clears throat> because he sized me up. Oh, and I wasn't dressed like this, mind you. I had, my, I had just come from the gym and had my sweat clothes on. I had a hoodie on. And so I came asking for some things, and he was asking me where I was from. I was like, what's that? Clark Street, where are you from? <laughs> he said, what are you doing here? I was like, trying to pass out invitations to Jesus. I was like, why, you want to come? He's like, give me, <laughs> he's like, give me one of those invitations. I was like, you want to come? They're valuable to me. <laughs> you going to come? If you come, I'll take you out to think. But he was beating your man down. <laughs> beating your man down because he had an impression in his mind of who I was without asking real questions. Right? Not looking to understand where I was coming from. And eventually we ended on the note of, what, you're looking to save people? And I was like, Yes! <laughs> Yes, we're actually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we were looking to save people. How about you? Will you come? He's like, we're done here. I was like, that's fine. But I left him a card. <laughs> and I hope he shows up, right? So that the bondage that he has in his heart, he can be delivered from. The biases and the presuppositions in his heart, I'm not mad at him. I bless him, right? In the name of Jesus, I understand that we look at no one from a worldly point of view any longer. Though we once considered Christ that way, we do so no longer, right? So though he was looking at me from a worldly point of view, do what should I and would I return the same? Would it be right? The answer is no. The answer is no. And to get to know people, not only outside the house, but in the, in the house, you've got to ask questions. Unite, you unite biblically around the cross of Jesus Christ. Champ Bailey, Champ Bailey is uh, actually a Hall of Famer now. He's a football player. If any of you watch the induction to the Football Hall of Fame, he was talking about how to overcome things in our country that we're dealing with now. And one of the exhortations that he gave to the people was he said, hey, listen, just be willing to get to know other people's stories. Get to know other people's stories. That's part of how the fears, that's part of how the presuppositions are broken down in such a way that God himself can set people free through the cross of Christ. And this makes us uncomfortable, but it's reality and what we've got to talk about if we're going to find the place to a unified church of God. Amen? Amen. And not just be people who attend sitting in seats together, but instead live and share life together in Christ. Amen? Okay. Come on now, reality. One of the challenges is not just utopic ideals, but it's, it's also the, uh, just the, 
the grumbling that we have in our tent. Psalm 106, 24 through 27. It was an unknown author, but he said this. He said that when God was trying to bring them into the land of healing, trying to bring them into the land of purpose, it says that they despise the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured, though God wanted to build unity amongst his people for his purposes, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the land. If you're going to be a unified people, what you say in public, yes, does count, but what you say in private also does as well. What you're saying about other people who God puts you together with and you know and you love, what kind of joking do you have about people when people who are not like you are not around? What kind of comments do you make? What kind of murmurings are there? And you, let me tell you something, it goes always. You hear me now. Yes, I'm an African-American man, but there's just as much bigotry in the midst of an African-American community as there is in any other community outside. And there are murmurings in the house, in the tent, that can be destructive to the unity that God himself wants to bring. There was a German of, um, a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You've heard me um, talk about him before. But he wrote a book called Life Together. Life Together, about life in the church. And he said this about life together. He said, the person who loves their dream of community will actually destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Meaning that people who have an idea in their mind of what the perfect church, the perfect scenario should look like, and they're always striving just for that thing, will actually destroy the thing that they're trying to build. Has anyone ever seen that before? Because instead of actually addressing things with the gospel of Christ in great humility, what they do is they become critics. What they do is they become people who are murmuring in their tents and tearing down the very thing that God's trying to build through them. Have you ever seen that before? Oh, I know you have. We become critics and we actually destroy the very thing that we have as an ideal in our mind. And to see us come to the place of the unity that God desire, um, desires, we must repent of that. Let's show a picture of the image in case anybody wants to um, read that. This is actually the book um, that you can get on Amazon, Life Together. It's short, real short. Real short. It's almost like a pamphlet. But it's beneficial to you. And what we can't do is allow offenses with our brothers and sisters to literally hamstring the work of God. It's not just about the presuppositions that you have towards others. What if somebody has offended you because you are somehow different? Has anybody ever been prejudged before and taken offense to it? Yeah. We, almost all of us have, right? Taken offense to it. And what can happen is, is that it can immediately put up walls or barriers in us because somebody had a picture in our mind of who we are, and it can literally cut off the unity that God wants to build in his house for his purposes. That's why Jesus Christ was so adamant whenever he was talking 
in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 26. He said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, meaning that you're predisposed to worship, right? You're predisposed to worship. You want to offer a gift on the altar. You want to worship God appropriately. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Now, this is challenging. This is challenging because it's not I have something against somebody else. Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you. Anybody ever been in a place before in your, a relationship or your marriage where you said, hey, they're offended with me, but they just got the wrong idea. They just heard me improperly. I didn't mean what they took it to mean. And you excuse yourself because of your intentions. But good communication, right, is about perception, not, not your intentions. Is that not right? And he says, literally, if I remember that somebody has something against me, then I need to do what? What, what did Jesus say? He said, go and leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, everybody say first, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Meaning if we choose not to be active in making an effort at reconciliation and preserving the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace with other people, then we ourselves imprison ourselves. We imprison ourselves. And you can point fingers and blame everybody else at the way that they're treating you or how they misunderstood you or how they took something the wrong way. But unless you make every effort to stand in the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace, you're imprisoning yourself. But he says, once you've done all that you can, stand. The question is, have we done all that we can so that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? If not, we've got some work to do. And this is what Bonhoeffer continues to write about in Life Together. He said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. My ideals of what things should look like, my ideals of how people should treat one another, makes you proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it. 
for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. Hear what he's saying? That's the challenge of utopic ideals. But the beauty of the gospel is that we live in a state of unmitigated forgiveness. And we preserve unity and diversity by continually offering the forgiveness that we were first offered at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how we build and that's how we continue to live in the unity, the purposes, and the personhood of God. We're going to end here. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Is this at least striking a note for where we live in our city, in our world today? It is if we're not living under a rock. Matthew 18, it said, Then Peter came up and said to him, meaning Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Tell me when's my limit, Jesus. We all have limits. When's mine? Give me permission to be at odds with somebody. Give me permission to take offense and stay there. Why? Because they deserve it. The Apostle Peter. As many as seven times, which was in biblical terms a number of perfection. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. He's like, good, I got my number. No, that's not what Jesus was saying. (laughs) He was saying, as often as they sin against you and come back and ask for forgiveness, forgive them. Pardon them. Release them. This is true in your marriage. This is true in your parenting. This is true in your, with your coworkers. This is true with your boss. This is true with your neighbor. This is true with the person on the train. This is true with the person on the street. This is the person who cut you off in traffic. Come on now, as many times as they do so, and ask for forgiveness, release them. Therefore, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Oh, now some of you who have student loans can uh, appreciate this because that's 20 years wages, 20 years worth of wages, 20 years. Can anybody say, oh my to that? This is real. And he said, listen, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Why? Because he couldn't pay it on his own. Wouldn't that be nice? But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And a denarii was, again, a day's wage. So as, composed to the tw- as um, compared to the 20 years that the servant owed, he found somebody who owed him a hundred days' wages. 
and seizing him, he began to choke him. Sound familiar, anybody? We'll be praying for people after the service, okay? He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had ta- that th- what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the reality of the gospel. God has paid for us a price that we couldn't pay ourselves in Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life that none of us have lived. He showed you as God by opening blind eyes, deaf ears, raising people from the dead, pardoning people even in his lifetime of their sin. And then he ultimately paid the price, the ultimate price with his own life on the cross. And on the cross took the debt that we all owe to a holy, righteous Father. He said, I didn't deserve it, but I'm giving you my grace. I'm giving you forgiveness because I love you. Now I command you to do the same for others. If you want to walk in the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you on the cross by his death, burial, and resurrection, you've got to give it to others first. We've all been violated in some way man, woman, and child. Doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your socioeconomic background, it does not matter where you started out. We are all the products of sin being perpetuated in our world. But he said, just as I've forgiven you, I'm giving you the power to forgive others. And if you want to walk in my forgiveness, if you want to walk free of the prison that you found yourself in, you've got to release people today as I've chosen to release you. And if you need help, that's the good news. Through prayer, God can set us free internally, but we make a choice to open our hand voluntarily and say, God, I need your help. And as you ask him, he will heal, he will forgive, and he will, by his salvation, make you whole. That is the promise for you. God can make you whole when you offer the forgiveness to others that you yourself have received from him. And that's how we maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It's the unity that God desires. It's a casting down of our utopic ideals. And it's understanding that we are walking in and need to give an unmitigated forgiveness to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.
So we're finished. But what I'm going to ask you to do is as we go back into worship, we have prayer counselors in the back who will be back there to stand with you in prayer. And if you say today, God, I want to come to repentance. I want to turn away from not only my sin, but the, the bondage I've placed myself in by violation, by offense, but I have not been able to let it go. And you need somebody to stand with you. People will be in the back to pray with you, to speak life to you, to speak the truth to you, and let the healing from the living God begin because he's got it for us all today. In Jesus' name, amen.